0: Think about who in your life has influenced you the most. Okay, it's not a rhetorical question. Yeah, really, think about it. Who in your life has influenced you the most? Okay, anybody want to just shout out? If it's not too embarrassing, you know. Like, probably not appropriate to say, oh, Lady Gaga. Or someone like that, you know. you know. Maybe you say Hudson Taylor, you know, some missionaries. Okay, you know. Any, okay, but anyone, anyone would like to share who in your life has been the you know, most influential? Okay, Nick looks as if he's trying to say... Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> who, who's sitting beside you, Jimmy? Erica, Erica. okay, sorry, Erica, hi. hi. Oh, I could, oh, Erica actually applauded, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Oh, very good answer, huh? Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Model answer, model answer. Um Time, Time Magazine. Time Magazine, um, they ran a, a news, uh, an edition where they rated who was the most influential person for the whole of the 20th century. Okay? Can you remember who it was that they thought was the most influential person for the whole 20th century? Yes, it was Albert. Einstein, okay so I mean so in a way, uh, he's influential, okay but for you personally, who has been the most influential person for you? Now you may not think about it, but actually it's Mommy and daddy. Okay? Mummy and daddy actually have a lot of influence on you. So I remember this time when um, I had just finished first year at Barber College and had returned to Singapore for holidays. And my principal and his wife were also passing through. Okay? So they joined my family for Christmas dinner. And just after one dinner conversation with my dad, uh, my principal came up to me and said later, now I know where you get it from. I was like, what? See, I, I don't realize it, but when my principal interacted with my dad, he goes, ah, yeah, yeah, this explains why. why is it that Ah, this, this is where why gets it from. So we are actually very much influenced by our parents. Uh, I, I, I wonder if any of you thought about your parents when I asked that question. But uh, a less obvious choice is also like our great-grandparents. Because for my case, it was my great-grandparents who migrated to Singapore all those years ago. Now, if they hadn't migrated, then I would be a Chinese boy in a Chinese city. Right? But because they had made the move, that's why now... I'm Singaporean and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Like so, um, sometimes it's not so obvious who are the people who have uh, the greatest influence on us. Now, this passage, you know, as Nick was reading it, if you are not familiar with it, I mean, as he was reading it, it's like wow, it's like dense, it's like complex, it's like got all those big words. But what Paul is trying to get across is the idea of influence. Who? Influences you the most. And you can see in verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man. And that one man, he's referring to Adam. Okay? So sin entered the world through Adam. Now, so the Bible's account of the world is that the world was perfect, and Adam and Eve, they were given uh, commands by God, but Adam broke. God's command. He disobeyed God, and because he disobeyed God, he was perfect. He was in a perfect situation, but because of his disobedience, because of his sin, now this alien thing, sin, rebellion against God, made its first appearance and is now a part of the world. So, through him, sin entered the world, and because the judgment for sin is death, that's why he says, uh, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sin. So no one escapes. No one is outside of Adam's influence. I mean, that's quite influential, right? That his one act of disobedience caused every single person from then on to be uh, sinful, and because they are sinful, they deserve death. Now, um, Paul's focus actually is not ultimately on Adam. Okay. In the prior passage, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, I mean, what, what has Paul been talking about? You look at verse 1, you look at verse 11, he's, he's been focusing on what Christ has accomplished. This relationship with God that we now have, this peace with God, this, this restored relationship with God that we now have. okay, And it's because of what Jesus has achieved by his death and resurrection. So Paul has told us, because of what Christ has done, you now have peace with God. You now have a restored relationship with God. Now how this passage today uh, comes into play is because Paul is trying to give us Confidence. Is trying to make us sure and certain, make us confident that what Christ has achieved can indeed guarantee our relationship, our peace with God. So that's why it begins with the word, therefore, there in verse 12. And the way Paul seeks to increase our confidence in the certainty, in the completeness and finality of what Christ has accomplished, the way he does it is, I mean, in, in, in chapter 5, 1 to 11, in one sense, he's focused on, on, on us as individuals, right? You have peace with God. So he's moving out, he's zooming out the camera, but he's not just zooming out to, okay, one church in a particular place. In fact, he's zooming out to the widest possible angle. Okay, so you can, can, can you imagine? He's not just talking about us as individuals. Oh, you as an individual, If you believe in Jesus, okay, by faith, you can have peace with God. Okay, so he's just asserted that. Okay, you now have that. But he wants to give us confidence that yes, you have peace. And the way he does it is he zooms out. And he zooms out to the widest possible angle. He zooms out until we have a cosmic view, until we have a universal view. Because you see, he talks about how Adam affects Every single human being. I mean, that, that that's as wide as you can get, right? Every single person who has ever lived, right? That's that's how wide he's gone, okay? And you see that um, in verse 12, he begins by saying, "Just as." Now, what do you expect to follow after a "just as"? Just as, then the the, the next must be a. So, right? So also, right? So just like, just as, uh, Nick has double eyelids, so also, Ruel has double eyelids. Huh? I mean, okay, that, that's the way you expect a just as, it needs to be followed by a so also. But look at verse 12, look at verse 13, look at verse, where, where is the so also? Huh? Isn't there? Okay, so Paul, he starts off by trying to increase our confidence by, and he wants to zoom out to the cosmic view, and he begins by wanting to compare Adam, just as Adam, but he doesn't get to his comparison until verse 18 and 19. Okay, so he gets uh, sidetracked in the middle, and he only comes back, you know, finally completes his comparison in verse 18 and 19. So have a look at 18 and 19. He says, consequently, just as, see, he okay, comes back to it, just as one trespass, okay, talking about Adam's sin, Adam's one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also, ah, now we come to it, okay, so also, one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as, through the disobedience of the one, Man, the many were made sinners. So also, through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So you see, he's trying to set up a comparison between Adam and Christ. Okay, see the similarity. What is the similarity? One man, one action, affects everybody. Adam's, you know, he's a one man, but his one action affects. Everyone. And in the same way, Christ, his one act, one action, also affects everyone. Now, what was the one action of Adam? It was his disobedience. And it is his disobedience by his sin and rebellion against God in the garden that caused like an avalanche to to result that just affected every single human person that, that went on from him. Okay, he, he released an avalanche of sin and death as a result of his disobedience. Now, the question is, how exactly did Adam's action affect me? You know, in, in what way? What's the connection? Like, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, this guy, his sin because of his sinful action, now affects me. How, how exactly is it translated? How exactly is it connected? How exactly did he affect me? How exactly did his sin cause me now to also have a sinful nature? That's one of the questions that comes up as we look at this passage. But you need to notice that Paul simply states that he affects he doesn't in any way explain how Adam affects everyone, okay, so no surprise that through church history you know two thousand years, there have been many people with bigger brains than us trying to think okay, how is it maybe it's genetic okay so maybe when adam sinned, his uh, it affected his his DNA you know his gen- genetics changed and you know there's a, there's a sinful gene or now so. Uh, his sinful gene is passed on through, uh, you know, in a hereditary way to the rest of the offspring. Okay, maybe that's one way. Uh, and then some other theologians say, oh, no, no, okay, maybe maybe it's more that Adam is our representative. Right, so, as the representative of humanity, what he achieves, or what he fails to achieve, affects us all. Right, so just like if, um, you know, Singapore, one of the heroes, wins a gold medal. We win, right? We win, right? But I didn't perspire, I didn't perspire, we didn't train, you didn't train. But because our representative won, we won, right? Yeah. Uh, So, uh, the important thing is not to be dogmatic about how exactly Adam's sin gets translated to us. But the fact is that it does. And it's um, you know, it is clear that it has. Right? That's, that's plain for all to see. Now, in one sense, the exact how is not important. Right? The plain fact is that when you look in the mirror, you see a sinner. You know that you don't even match up to your own standards much less God's. So you know yourself, I mean, I got my own standards, I got good standards in, good a, in certain areas, but I don't even keep my own standards. So, some people are obsessed about, okay, how exactly does Adam's sin affect us? Okay, I want to say that through the years, theologians have come up with different you know, propositions. Some are better than others. But my take on it is not to be too you know, overly concerned about how exactly the way it is, Because, for example, if tomorrow you find out you have cancer, okay, now, I will bet with you that when you find out you have cancer, you will spend zero amount of time trying to find out how exactly you got it. Right? Was it because I ate too much preservative? Or, you know, I stayed in this part of Singapore and then the smoke from where it was coming from, you know, I, 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 I breathed in too much of this. I mean, you, you will spend zero amount of time investigating how exactly you got it. You will spend all your time, all your energy finding out what is the cure. So that's why Paul doesn't go into it. And I'm sure it's not a, a simple, you know, okay, exactly how. It's probably quite complex. So he just saves up the time, because if you look in the mirror, you know you're a sinner. So he just says, yes, you're a sinner because the first man sinned, and he resulted in all of us being affected. Now what we should be concerned about is, what's the solution? What's the solution? Don't be too overly concerned about how exactly it got translated to me, transmitted to me. I think that's what I'm looking for, transmitted, not translated. <laughs> transmitted, transmitted to me, transmitted to me. Okay. So just as Adam affects many, so also Christ affects many. Right? Through the obedience of the one man, verse 19, the many will be made righteous. And what is this obedience that Paul is referring to? Right, most likely is the obedience of Jesus obeying the Father going to the cross, paying for the sin of his people, taking our penalty on himself. So you see, he starts that comparison in verse 12, and he only completes it in verse 18 and 19. And the principle is of one affecting many. One affecting many. That's the similarity between Adam and Christ. But Paul wants us to know, okay, that's where the similarity ends. Okay? because before he comes to his you know, completion of his comparison in verse 18 and 19 he has spent time in 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 what, what has he been doing there? he has actually been showing what the difference is okay? so he comes to the similarity what's similar between them in verse 18 19 but before he gets to what's similar he actually spends time saying okay, okay this is different This is different, this is different, this is different, okay? It's like if I said to you, my wife is like a water buffalo. Okay, I must first say, okay, she doesn't look like a water water buffalo. She sure doesn't smell like a water buffalo. But what I mean when I say she's like a water buffalo is that she's strong and dependable. Ah, like a water buffalo. So you see, before I told you how she's like a water buffalo, Because it's a very odd comparison. My wife bought a buffalo, right? So I must say, okay, okay, she doesn't smell like one. She 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 doesn't look like one, okay? So in the same way, Paul is going to compare Adam with Christ. It's like it's like comparing Hitler and Lee Kuan Yew. Because Adam is no hero. I mean, he, he appears in all the children's Bible stories. You know, we we might like Adam, but actually, Adam is no hero. Adam. Adam's a joker that got us into this, right? So it's like comparing Hitler and Lee Kuan Yew. So there is a valid comparison, but before he's going to make that comparison, he'll say, okay, but this is different, this is different, this is different, this is different. Okay, That's what Paul is doing in verses 15, 16, 17. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 he says, Nor can the gift of God be compared. See, it cannot be compared. What what Christ does, okay, cannot be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. So you see, it's so different, right? Adam, his one action, brought condemnation. But Jesus, his one action brought justification. Now, what is condemnation? Condemnation is like an intensified form of judgment. Okay, Condemnation is like final judgment. Okay, Think of it this way. You can receive a verdict in the lower courts. Okay, You can receive your judgment. But at the lower court, there is still room for appeal. You can appeal to the higher court. Now, condemnation is the verdict that the Supreme Court gives you. There's no more appeals. This is the final verdict. You are condemned. So, true Adam, it's condemnation. But, true Jesus, there is justification. Justification is the verdict of being declared, hmm, you're right. You're good. You're good with me. We are good. It's okay between us. You are right. You're in the right. Okay, so, it is the exact opposite that each man brings. Adam brings the verdict of final, irreversible judgment, condemnation. But Jesus brings justification, being declared righteous. But it's not just opposite. Okay, Jesus doesn't just bring something that's opposite to Adam. What Jesus does is actually reversing the effects of the other. Jesus justifies those who were in the state of being condemned. Jesus reverses the effects of Adam's sin. See, like, Adam, because of his one action, like, I mean, you you imagine he did this stupid thing and then this avalanche, right? the, the, The snow, when you disturb it, it will just come naturally down. right? And then all the villages that are below will be destroyed. I mean, that's just what naturally happens when you do something stupid at the top. Then the avalanche comes, the people, the villages below will be hit. But Jesus, what he does is not just opposite. He actually reverses the negative effects of what Adam did. As if pushing the snow all the way back up. So verse 16, one sin, One sin led to all of us having a sinful nature. And because we have a sinful nature, we commit sin. And because we commit sin, we receive the verdict of condemn. But Jesus, his gift, his work, what he has done, you see, verse 16 says what? Followed many trespasses and brought justification. It's just like you got a brand new shirt, white, white, it's clean, it's spotless. I mean, the only thing you can do to it is get it dirty. Right? You can't make it cleaner. It's already spotless. So so Adam, he was given this spotless white shirt. Okay? But he made a fool of himself, he disobeyed God and got it all dirty. But what Jesus does is even though this shirt has been dragged in the mud, it's got lipstick, there's iodine spilled on it, there's and everything, it's so dirty, so much trespasses. But his one act restores it. It's white again, it's spotless again. You see, so it's not the same. One man's action, yeah, naturally affects everyone. But how great is the effects of Jesus to reverse it all. To reverse it all. So you see, this brings us to the icebreaker question, right? Because as uh, you know, young Christian, this was one of the questions I wondered about. Yeah, I mean, you know, Jesus coming to save us—that's that's good. But why does He need to save me in the first place? If if not for Adam. And and it's so unfair that something you know I didn't do, He did. But what he did now affects me, such that I have a sinful nature, and because I have a sinful nature, I cannot help but sin. And so since I sin, then, okay, you know, I deserve God's judgment, but isn't it unfair that, that what Adam did affects me? Now, so, there's a few things to say to that. The first thing to say is that it cannot be unfair. Okay? Because God cannot be judging us with anything less than his perfect righteous justice. Okay, does it make sense? Okay, I, I know it doesn't fully answer your question yet, okay, but I'm getting you. This is just the first point. That in God's law court, okay, there's no miscarriage of justice. God, because of his nature, must be dealing with you fairly. Okay, does, that, does that make sense? Is okay? Okay, it okay? It, it must be a fair process. How, how Adam's sin got transmitted to me and therefore makes me responsible now. That, that I, because of this sinful nature, should commit sin and receive judgment. It's, it's fair. God is dealing justly with us because He is not unjust. He's holy. He's righteous. Right? That, that's part of His nature. He cannot contradict His nature. Okay, so he, it must be fair. Though we, we cannot you know, understand or articulate exactly how Adam affects us so that we are culpable. Okay? But he must be dealing with us fairly. Okay? Now the second thing to say is this same principle that led to us being sinners and under the judgment of God. Okay? What is this principle? That one affected many right that's the principle one one man adam he affected me now this principle of one affecting many is is what has caused us to be in this state that's why we are sinners but this principle is this same principle that is now being used to lead to our life and hope and righteousness and justification right so so as the sort of passion that you have, is so unfair. Can you turn that now to, hey, but this same principle is now being used on me to give me life? You see, okay, now, okay, I, I, I thought of this illustration. It's just like, huh? It's just like your father borrowed money from the loan shop. Okay? And then, okay, maybe your dad couldn't pay, and then one day the loan shark appeared at your door and said, Okay, learning pay. You know, borrow money, and then now you owe me, you know, hundred thousand. and you hundred thousand, but how, how much did dad borrow? Oh dad borrowed one thousand. Ha! Huh? He borrowed one thousand and then now I owe you a hundred thousand. Right, okay. you feel unfair? Unfair? I mean, were you the one that did the stupid thing and borrow from the loan shark? No, right? But because of what someone else did, it affected you. So now you owe the loan shark hundred thousand. You feel it's unfair, right? But what if the loan shark came and said, "Okay, hey, are you uh, Mr. Lee's son? Ah, huh? oh, you are. Ah, oh, yeah, I can see, look alike. Okay, here's a hundred grand for you. Then what happened? Oh, see, the same principle now, but in reverse." You see, one affected many, but in Adam's case it caused us to go into debt. But now, because of what Christ has done, he reverses all that. So this same principle of one affecting many now makes us rich in life and in righteousness and in grace. So, does it, do you see how I'm trying to answer (laughs) the question? It's unfair that yes, but one person affecting many. But in one sense, it's, it's natural. It's like, you know, you gravity happens, avalanche falls down. But so much harder for Christ to reverse it all. And this, this reverse happens, and this same principle is now applied to us in a positive way. His one action can actually now give you life, grace, justification. Look at verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reign through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So Adam, what he does leads to death. Christ, what he does leads to life. Okay, let me ask you, is it easier to kill someone or to bring someone who is dead back to life? Hmm? Uh, you know the answer. I mean, there is a million and one ways to kill someone. Just look at, you know, Final Destination, Part 1, Part 2, Part 3, Part 4, Part 5. I mean, there are so many ways to kill someone, right? Yay! We are all capable of doing it. But we are powerless in the face of someone who is dead. We are unable to bring it back to life. Adam, his one action leads to death. But Christ, by what he has done, actually brings life now to people. So you see, Paul is not just focusing on you, know, you as an individual, as a Christian, what is your relationship to God. But he's actually expanded the view and given us a cosmic view of what has actually taken place. Adam, his effect, and now Christ, what he has done, affecting many. So if you like, a helpful way of thinking about it is, Adam, through his action, brings in a humanity that is enslaved to sin and death. They are under the realm, they are under the the kingdom of sin and death. And there's no escape. Because of what Adam did, every single human person is in that kingdom, in that realm of sin and death. But now Christ, Christ comes in and he inaugurates, he starts a new kingdom. And a new kingdom that is, instead of death, there is life. Instead of condemnation, there is justification. Instead of law, there is grace. And this new kingdom those who believe in him, those who have received his grace can be a part of that kingdom. So every single person who has ever lived is either standing behind Adam in his kingdom or they're standing behind Jesus in his kingdom. So uh, at this point, there's one thing that Paul in this passage feels he has to deal with. And it's, uh, he has to deal with the question of the law. Okay, because, you know, he's talked about Adam, then he's talked about Jesus. But then the, the Jews will say, hey, wait a minute, what about what happened in the middle? Didn't God give the law? Okay, so in verse 13 and 14, he says, yes, yes, the law was given. But even before the law was given, there was already sin. And the reason why we know there is sin is because people died. Genesis chapter 4, 5, 6 onwards, people die, And that is a sure indication that there is sin. And in fact, he says, yes, God gave the law through Moses, but the law cannot do anything against sin. In fact, he says in verse 20, the law was brought in not to deal with sin, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. You see, because before God says, okay, the speed limit is 60, then you drive above 60, in one sense you haven't broken the law, because there was no law that said the speed limit is 60. But you can tell when a guy is a bad driver. Okay? okay, you know, Yes, he hasn't, he hasn't broken the law because I haven't said it's 60, but when he's a bad driver, he's a bad driver. Okay, God can judge because of that. So there is sin, that's why there's death. But, uh-huh, when he actually erects the sign that says 60, then you drive at 61, that's it. You've broken the law. So you see, the, the law comes in not to deal with sin. Not to, okay, keep sin at bay, deal, you know, be a solution to sin, but Paul says the, the law actually increases our trespass. Because now we know. We know not to lie. We know not to covet. We know that pride is hateful to God. We know that divorce is wrong. We know, and yet when we do these things, we are even more condemned. We are even more guilty. We are even more culpable and responsible. That's what he means there. But you see, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. Now, note what he says. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. You see, because sin cannot win against grace. Sin can win against law. You put a law there, humans will break the law. And so sin wins. I've got you condemned before God. But sin cannot win against grace. Because sin, what can it do? It makes you sin. But when you sin, what does the passage tell us? Grace increases. You sin this much, grace increases to this much to cover it. You sin this much, grace increases this much to cover it. I mean, his point is that there is nothing. There's absolutely nothing that sin can do that will drive a wedge between God and His people. That's how much confidence we must have in what Christ has done. Nothing will be able to drive a wedge between God and His people. Just like, okay, you just imagine, you know, if, if, if you're a girl, okay, and then you really want to marry this guy, okay? Now, what's the problem? The problem is the guy is already married. Okay, so let I say you're this really sinful girl, really w- wicked girl, and so you 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 attempt to get this couple to break up, so that he'll be available and then you can marry him. And so I don't know, maybe you you get a you no, know, you get you get a, a hunk to go and seduce the wife, and then you get the you know private investigator to snap. Um, what's the one I'm looking for? Um, compromising. Pictures of the wife, and then you show it to the husband. Hey, you see what your wife is doing? Okay, but nothing will happen if the husband continues to forgive. Right, so you may, you may, you may, you know, increase in your schemes. Showed him this, say that she did this, whatever. But but as long as the husband is ready to forgive, nothing to happen. Now you may think that. Alama, where, where got a husband like that one? Well, I'm telling you, there is. His name is Jesus. right? He has done absolutely everything to show us that whatever it is you do, nothing, nothing that you do can cause me to turn my face away from you. Because where sin increased, grace has increased all the more to cover up that sin. Whatever it is that you do, God forgives. That's how great his love is. No matter how big your sin and no matter how many times you sin that bigly, he will forgive. Because where sin increase, grace increase all the more. Because the thing that you must understand is that when Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't just doing something. Oh, God, you see, I'm being obedient to you. So that means, you know, all my people that I will save, you know, we, we get some brownie points. You know, his, his, this act of obedience did not just win us some credit. You know, credit that, hey, but if you don't watch out, huh, you might exceed that credit and then, oh, that's it, you're on your own. Jesus' act on the cross did not just do that. Because Jesus is God Himself and as God, God Himself taking on our sin and paying the full penalty of it such that every single of your sins, things that you in the future will commit that you don't even know that you might be capable of, but God already knows, but He already knows, yes, My son has paid for that. Jesus has already dealt with that because so where sin has increased, grace has increased all the more to cover up that sin so that we may have great confidence that his one act of obedience affects all those who will receive that abundance of grace. And you see, verse 17, what does it say? Right? Verse 17 How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace? You see, we can receive it. We receive it by entrusting ourselves to Jesus. By trusting in who he is, that he is a son of God. And that as a son of God, it was he who has gone to the cross, risen again. And all this to pay for all my sins. So sometimes we feel that as Christians, we have stuffed up right we've gone the wrong way, you know we've really allowed things to spiral down all the way. Now do you see what this passage is trying to tell you that his abundant provision of grace will cover everything that you have done so there's a Discussion question, right? Is that what you are call it? Huh? Oh, there's Q&A first. Then there's a discussion question. Is it? Oh, okay. 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 Then Q&A first. Lah. Yeah. Q&A. But before we Q&A, <clears throat> let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, what you have done through him for us. We thank you for his great act of obedience. Help us to see, soften our hard hearts that we can see and grasp more clearly your great love and your great abundance of grace. Thank you, Father. Amen. Just call me Y. Yes, just call me Y. Ah, okay, yes, thanks. That's a good question. So, the most influential person, I mean, in one sense, is Adam, right? Because, you know, your parents maybe gave you black hair, you know, myopia, you know, whatever. You know, grandparents caused you to be in Singapore or instead of Canada. But in terms of like foundational life and death stuff, Adam, his one action. That's right now sinful, commit sins. But Paul is saying, but Christ does one better. Because of Christ, you can actually have life. So, uh, Christ potentially can be the most influential person. But if you have not received God's abundant provision of grace in Christ, then the most influential person uh, is still Adam. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Good question. yeah so, so not, not really Albert Einstein, yes God's favor on those who not only don't deserve it but deserve the opposite, right so we're not like neutral that God comes, okay, I don't owe you anything, you know, um you haven't done anything to earn my favor, but okay, I just give you favor, okay? I mean so in one sense that's gracious right but uh, in the Bible, we actually deserve the opposite of God's favor. We deserve his wrath. We deserve his anger to rightly fall on us. But instead of giving us that, yeah, we are in his grace. Yeah. So, you know, grace, grace, grace. You know, it's not talking about grace pana. you know. It's, it's uh, you know, grace hasn't led me to heaven, you know. Is she here, Grace? <laughs> but yeah, what 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 a beautiful sound, yeah, Grace. Yeah. So so Paul is trying to increase our appreciation of grace, right? because inherently we understand works, right? We understand works. We understand you do something, you get something in return. Right, so, so in chapter 5, he said, hey, by faith, now you're saved. But it's hard for people to really get it, right? You, you, you may sort of understand it intellectually, but when you come to church, you may still feel that you need to prove something to God. You need to earn his favor. And one of the negative effects is you, you tend to look down on those who haven't made as much progress as you, because the inherent to the human heart is that of a religion of works. Right. So Paul is trying very hard to show us, you no, know, we can be confident in the, you know, in what grace has achieved. Just like one man affects many, Christ's one action affects many who trust in him as well. So that we can be confident. Yes, grace. Will lead me to heaven. Grace, you give me the power to change. Grace is enough, yeah, and is uh, unmeasured. Grace, unmeasured, right? Because where sin increase, grace increases all the more. Yeah, so.